During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a new podcast I think you should check out. It's called Uneffing the Republic, but they don't say effing. So hear me out mid-show when I tell you all about their most recent episode. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the need for a modern assessment of the corporate monopolies who dominate our online and offline experiences, including seeing the negative consequences of monopolies through a racial justice lens. Clips today are from Exponential View, Follow the Money, Off Kilter, and The Economic Security Project. I asked Corey why it was that Western democratic governments appeared to be ineffectual at meeting the clear needs of their constituents, while appearing to be very competent at satisfying the desires of corporate lobbyists. Here's what he had to say. I think that it's the uh, concentration of power into a small number of hands. So, you know, think about just industrial concentration, which is, of course, very closely related to wealth concentration, the, mm. the shareholders of monopolists are able to realize dividends based on monopoly rents. So they do very well by themselves. And um, the, uh, the contraction of industries has been endemic for the last 40 years. And it's not a mystery why, right? We, we stopped enforcing antitrust law. We adopted mm -hmm. the theories of Robert Bork, who was, um, you know, Ronald Reagan's court sorcerer, who said that we shouldn't enforce antitrust law except when we can prove a consumer harm, generally in the form of a higher price in the immediate aftermath of a merger acquisition or other anti-competitive act. Mm -hmm. And now we're down to three or four companies in every industry. You know, an example of this from the British context that I always think about is what happened when David Nutt was the drug czar of the United Kingdom under the, uh, the Brown years. Um, and he, uh, you know, he's a psychopharmacologist, evidence-based scientist, and he saw that the drinks industry was making its profit from um, binge drinking, from dangerous binge drinking. And so David Nutt did a randomized trial where he designed his own anti-binge drinking program, and he found that he could get people to stop binge drinking in large part. David Nutt was subsequently fired because he refused to state that um, alcohol was safer than cannabis, which scientifically it isn't. And the drinks industry continues to make its own anti-drinking rules. And so, you know, how do we end up in a place where uh, lobbyists are able to turn truth-seeking exercises into auctions, where the official truth is determined by the highest bidder and not by the evidence? Mm -hmm. Well, they, they mobilize monopoly rents and they solve collective action problems by being monopolies. Borkism and the weakening of American antitrust laws through the 70s and the 80s. Antitrust has been a big question in the tech industry for many, many years, and we've just seen in the past few weeks some new meaningful claims made towards Facebook and, uh, and Google, amongst others. What's your reading about whether those cases will have an impact? Oh, I think that they're definitely going to have an impact. I think that even if they lose, they'll win. The remedies in the US that they're seeking are not money damages, right? They're structural remedies. They want these companies to allow interoperability. They want them to get approval for mergers. They articulate some consumer harms. They also go to enormous lengths to articulate a bunch of non-consumer harms and say, now we're not addressing those here. We just wanted to get them in the record. And the implication is, you know, we are um, getting them in the record in part to demonstrate the poverty of Borkism. 
But the other thing that's going to happen during the, these antitrust cases, which are going to drag on for a long time, is that they are going to, on the one hand, change the character of the firms that are themselves under investigation. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, they are going to um, uh, send a signal to their rivals in the marketplace. I often think about my own uh, history as a, uh, a computer user. So I started getting online in the early 1980s, and I was mm-hmm. able to dial up b- bulletin board systems all across America. AT&T's major project before the antitrust suit had been blocking the growth of uh, digital telecommunication service that uh, operated at the edge instead of in the center. They wanted Minitel, where every key press uh, generated a, a revenue for AT&T. Right. And then um, in, by 1984, suddenly there was this explosion of people I could talk to. And the reason for that was that IBM made a PC. And when IBM made the PC, it didn't make the operating system because it um, was scared that even though it had beat the DOJ during its its 12-year antitrust sojourn, and during those 12 years, IBM, IBM spent more on its legal defense than the entire DOJ spent on all antitrust action against all companies in America every year for 12 years. <laughs> so IBM had finally kind of emerged from this allegedly victoriously, but they knew that one of the things that the FTC really didn't like was when hardware manufacturers tried to corner the market on software. So they summoned a couple of nerds named Paul Allen and Bill Gates to them and got them to make the operating system. And then along came this punk hardware engineer, Tom Jennings, who's a friend of mine. And and Tom was employed by a company called Phoenix. He went and reverse-engineered the ROMs for the IBM PC, and they sold it to the likes of Compaq, Dell, and Gateway and created the PC clone industry, all of which IBM exercised forbearance over because they were uh, Mm. frightened that they would end up back in the DOJ's crosshairs. Remember, they won the DOJ case. Right. And they were frightened that they would be back in the DOJ's crosshairs. So Phoenix became the the Phoenix BIOS, the Phoenix uh, Mm -hmm. basic input output system that was uh, powering many, many, many IBM clone PCs for 10, 15 years to come. That's right. Yeah. But by the mid-90s, along came the Microsoft antitrust suit, And it was pretty clear that Microsoft had a monopoly, 95% of the desktop, and that they were abusing it. We'd all watched what had happened to Netscape. It wasn't, wasn't pretty. And I was like, all right, I guess whatever happened to AT&T is happening again now. That's, that's good. I didn't realize that, you know, the DOJ's antitrust division had been like reeling along gut shot by Ronald Reagan. And this was its, you know, last dying gasp before it croaked. And it went after Microsoft and it lost. Mm. But seven years of antitrust hell with Microsoft, um, completely changed the character of Microsoft's boardroom. Right. Uh, every time someone wanted to do something really evil, Microsoft exercised forbearance because the last thing anyone wanted was another viral video of Bill Gates on the stand looking like an absolute nutter. You feel sympathy for him. And so, of course, it's only natural that Google is back in the crosshairs. And it also tells you that Google is not especially evil or especially good, that Google is run by the same kind of mediocrities that in the absence of incentives not to go off and be monopolists, go off and do monopolist stuff. And so now we just have to deal with the monopolist and and give them the same spanking we've given all the monopolists before them. And if we do that, all of Google's competitors who are currently dreaming of being a Google someday will wake up and say, you know, perhaps I don't want to spend 15 years having all of my emails put on the internet during discovery process and um, being being deposed and having it live streamed and so on.
So just before we wrap up, I want to come back to the actual issue that we are trying to uh, solve here, which is the huge and incredible market power of Google and Facebook. And the ACCC was really careful to point out that they're prioritising this issue because it's harming journalism and journalism is important to democracy. Given where we are at the moment... Google's really done nothing to avoid shining a spotlight on how huge their market power is here. All the threats, this modelling, everything that they're actually doing is actually showing how much market power they have. Absolutely. And, look, once upon a time, in a complete fluke coincidence, uh, newspapers were the best way for someone that wanted to sell their car to find someone who wanted to buy a car. Or it was a great way for an employer that was looking for a new employee to find that employee. So classified advertising used to be called the rivers of gold. All right. And, and by the way, that had nothing to do with journalism. Yeah. Uh, it just happened to be that, uh, a lot of people liked the idea of buying the Saturday paper and getting some news and some sport and everything they could possibly want to buy was there for them. Uh, and, you know, there were there was competition. There were things like the trading posts that just had the classified ads and no news. Yeah. Right? But historically, newspapers around the world made a lot of money out of those classified ads. And right now, newspapers still make a lot of money, I don't know, with an ad for Coles or Woolworths, with an ad for a car, with an ad for a tennis racket. So yeah. advertising is the main source of revenue for newspapers who employ journalists. Mm. And because eyeballs buy the newspapers, they're attractive to the advertisers. But in the online space, and this I don't think is quite well enough understood, in the online space, something really different happens. If you want to advertise a new car, it makes sense to put the car ad in the car section of the paper. Mm. Ad sell a tennis racket, you stick it in the sports, right? So if you go to the Sydney Morning Herald website, uh, you might see an ad for a car or a tennis racket. But newspapers' website can't ever charge as much as Google can for an ad because Google knows everything you've ever done online ever. Yeah. So when Ebony types in uh, Australian Open to Google, the ad that's displayed next to your search results is not just a random ad for a tennis racket. Yeah. It's the ad that the best algorithms in the world think, given everything we know about Ebony's entire search history, her online viewing habits, you name it, right? All of that information about Ebony means I can display the perfect ad for you. Yeah. In the Google search. The perfect rose gold glitter tennis racket. That's just where I was hitting. (laughs) And when your newspaper tries to sell an ad, they can't say to the advertiser, they can't say to the tennis racket company, when Ebony comes to the Sydney Morning Herald website, we know everything she's ever done. Yeah. So So what's actually happening here is that because Google owns all of Ebony's data, Google can pitch ads at Ebony far more effectively than the newspaper ever can. So their bargaining power is not just about the market share. Mm. There's this incredible barrier to entry that if I set up Flugel tomorrow, (laughs) I don't have your whole back catalogue of search. Yeah. So I can't say to an advertiser, hey, give it to me. Mm. I'll, I'll match your tennis racket ad 
to the people in Australia most likely to feel like buying a tennis racket yeah. right now. So the market power isn't just how big they are, it's how much they know mm-hmm. and how hard it is for a newspaper or Flugel or anyone else to kind of start from scratch and try and compete with them. And so what Google is to search advertising, I think Facebook is to display exactly. advertising. And, and, and same thing, like Facebook knows everything you've ever paused to watch on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Facebook knows all the things that you've engaged with in Facebook. So when I, as a person trying to sell microphones or iPads or tennis rackets, approach Facebook and say, I'd like to put an ad in front of the right kind of people, Facebook knows more about who the right kind of people are than the newspapers or anyone else ever can. So their market power is not just enormous, but it's very hard from a a, a free market point of view for, for any competitor to ever catch up. You know, you look at Google, which is obviously one of the great monopolists of the tech world, and you know they are—they're um, uh, a company that has only ever made one and a half successful products in-house, right? They—they they, uh, uh, first they—they they made a really good search engine, mm-hmm. then they made a pretty good Hotmail clone. And then everything else they built in-house crashed and burned. And everything they did that was successful, they bought from someone else, from Android to YouTube. And, and uh, you know, if we had just exercised the traditional contours of antitrust scrutiny against predatory mergers and the creation of vertical monopolies, then Google would be a one-and-a-half product company still. Mm. But, you, you know, I, I'm not sure it's such a problem that companies go off and, and buy their innovation, their bright ideas from elsewhere. Firms have been doing it for a pretty long time. And, you know, Cisco is a great example uh, of a firm we never, we don't really think of that much these days, but was the, the, the sort of case study for how you grow, grow a culture, grow a business by, by buying other people's inventions and, and pumping them through your, your distribution. I, I mean, I think it's a, isn't that just a reasonable toolkit in the executive's armory? I don't know why. I mean, if the purpose of a market is to uh, create lots of choices for consumers so that the best ideas can bubble up to the top, then taking all the best ideas and sticking them under one roof means that you don't get to have multiple best ideas. I mean, when you look at why Zuckerberg bought Instagram, he specifically bought Instagram because people didn't like Facebook and they liked Instagram better. That was the purpose of it. Um, you know, you look at WhatsApp, which, you know, hypothesized that charging small dollar subscription fees could obviate the need for advertising. And Zuckerberg was invested in the ideological proposition that that shouldn't work. And so he bought them and he wiped out that alternative that some people wanted. If you believe that markets are efficient capital allocators because consumers make choices that indicate what is good and what is not then depriving them of those choices means that you deprive the market of its ability to aggregate decisions. I suppose one could argue that it didn't prevent other entrepreneurs coming up with similar, better products than Instagram. Oh, well, it certainly has at this point. I mean, if you read the antitrust case against Facebook, you know, you, you find that um, people who, first, investors are just completely uninterested in investing in in direct competitors to Facebook uh, and any line of business that's adjacent to it, they call it the kill zone. When you look at Snapchat, 
Facebook had used vertical integration to, among other things, acquire uh, Onavo, which was a piece of spyware that masqueraded as a battery monitor. Yeah. And they used Onavo to gather market intelligence on the... um, uh, on on how people use Snapchat so that they could predate Snapchat. They could ensure that no one ended up using Snapchat. And today, Snapchat is probably not long for this world. So yeah, I, I think that it's absolutely the case that that um, the, an, an aggressive acquisition strategy that includes um, predatory acquisitions and mergers to monopoly, as well as the creation of vertical monopolies, uh, that that does preclude investment in and creation of competing firms that make better offers to consumers. What is the News Media Bargaining Code? Well, it all goes back to the last time that we looked at media laws back under Malcolm Turnbull. Remember him? <laughs> and Vaguely. <laughs> um, there was a change of media ownership laws that would allow the breakdown of the old two and three rules that you could. That was really limiting media ownership to the old technologies of radio, TV and um, print. And the Nick Xenophon team actually required there be a review in the way that the media operates and the impact of the digital platforms. And like this is 2017 and Rod Sims and his team at the ACCC went off and did their research and they looked around the world and he realised that no one had really got their head around this and that there was a big issue and he calls it monopoly power of advertising companies. And that's what Google and Facebook have become. Their primary business is advertising. And that market power had had a bunch of consequences, but particularly with the media who were not only a competitor for ads, but what he called an unavoidable trading partner in that they needed the platforms to distribute their news content. So Sims took this big global helicopter view and he came out with a really robust report that anyone that um, is interested should download and read. Um, and it sets this scene of the market power of tech and a range of ways that government could intervene in that monopoly power to promote the public interest. He looked at um, privacy, how how we control the information the tech platforms take. He looked at disinformation. He looked at um, the creepy world of ad tech, which is this weird online trading system that happens in real time whenever you go to a website. And he also looked at the case that news companies should have a right to receive payment for the value of their journalistic content to the network. Now, the cynical might say, surprise, surprise, guess what ended up being at the front of the queue? And of course, it was the news bargaining code, which would deliver significant money to media outlets, which um, was the first cab off the rank in terms of reform. And it's been the law that's been making its way through our parliament so the way the bargaining code operates is it, it initially said we've got a problem because traditionally media has been valued based on the number of ads that you could sell. And what the monopoly of Google and Facebook has done is separate out news from advertising. They become different industries and we've got no way of knowing what the value of public interest journalism is. 
We know the cost if we don't have it because we're seeing democracies a collapse around the globe, but we don't actually know the value. So you platforms and you news outlets, you go and work out what that market is and what the value is. And originally the, 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 the ACCC said, go and come up with a voluntary agreement on the value. And the monopolists, Google and Facebook, didn't think that was such a great idea and they didn't really enter good faith bargaining and the fallback was the mandatory code. So it's a mechanism. So underneath those negotiations is law that says if you can't reach an agreement, a third party will ask each of you to put your best offer on the table and we will pick the most reasonable of those, right? So that's the code. Yep. And Facebook has committed to entering into good faith negotiations with Australian news media businesses in seeking to reach agreements to pay for content. On top of that sits the discretion of the treasurer to designate platforms into the code. Now, originally, there was Google, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram that were going to be in the code. The first round of amendments before Christmas pulled out YouTube and Instagram. Um, the TV stations were really unhappy about YouTube being out because they see them as a big competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Google and Facebook remain. Google and Facebook don't want to be designated. But the other. treasurer would still have discretion if... Uh... To bring them in at a future time. Or yeah, okay. if TikTok became ubiquitous as a source of news or if, you know, the Australia Institute set up a platform and got ubiquitous and got a degree of power, you could be designated or we could be designated into the code. So... Then over the last couple of months, the prize for Google and Facebook to stop a global precedent has been to stay out of the code. And the leverage the treasurer has had is said to Google first after they threaten to go to the edge of the cliff, go off and make your own deals and you won't need to be designated in the code. And now I think this is where Facebook ends up. They didn't go to the edge of the cliff, they jumped off. Mm. But now coming out of the ruins, they're saying, well, if you don't want to be in the code, do the deals. What we saw with Google, and that was a pretty protracted and difficult negotiation as well, but what we saw with Google were significant deals, millions of dollars flowing to support public interest journalism in this country with a range of players. Now, one of the problems is that it's all commercial incompetence, so we don't quite know what the deals are, and there are also issues in terms of ensuring that money goes to journalists. But in terms of forcing a transfer of a significant amount of money from the tech platforms to journalism, the code's kind of done its job or it's doing its job before it's even become law. You know, there has been a lot of pushback that this code really is just to help Rupert Murdoch, Mm. but is that accurate? Well, it will help Rupert Murdoch. It's not only it will help The Guardian, it will help nine Fairfax, it will help smaller publishers, any publisher earning over 150 grand a year. It will create more viable business models for journalism in Australia because rather than having to choose between clickbait-driven advertising or echo chamber-fueled firewalls or the novel charity model of The Guardian, Mm. there is now an extra plank of income that just gives those businesses ballast. And I think they will, we will have a stronger and more diverse media ecosystem because of it. I don't think the Murdoch critique is the most effective. I, and you know, in terms of the tax, I love the idea of, um, taxing advertising on the platforms. 
I'm less sure about whether that should be hypothecated for journalism and then a government chooses where that tax goes. I think in terms of dealing with Google and Facebook being world-class tax evaders, definitely like let's get a tax in and use it to fund an increase in new start or better services mm. um given that they pay under like it's single figures the amount they pay is ridiculous because mm. facebook in particular repatriates all their profits to ireland but the one that i'm more concerned about um and none of this stuff is black and white, there is a really valid argument that what this code does is actually make our media more reliant on Google and Facebook and that they will have, there are two concerns there. One is, does it mean that they become part owners and there's a tendency for some organisations not to scrutinise them with the same degree of independence? Um, yeah. But the second one, which... It's come out over the last few days after Facebook turned off the tap. You know, a site like Junkie has basically been set up to push content on Facebook. Mm. So if all our news sites end up being, you know, the ABC totally relies on Facebook for their community. So if all this does is entrench journalism to be delivered via the platforms, then, yeah, I think that would not be the optimum outcome. So, look, I think there's a lot of really intelligent, well-meaning people trying to get their head around this. What holds us all together is that we do want to see a vibrant public square that isn't dominated by Murdoch. Yeah. But um, you're right, this was the proposition in front of us. So it wasn't a bargaining code or a tax. It was a bargaining code or nothing, Yeah. you know. So where do you go with that? I feel comfortable in the position we've taken as an institute. Um, problem that the ACCC was trying to solve, which is the market power and the monopolies of Google and Facebook. You know, I have heard people kind of talking about, oh, well, you know, setting up an alternate social media and why is the media so reliant on Facebook? But that is a function of their market power because even mm. if you do manage to set up you know, a really successful alternative, how long is it before Facebook or Google just buys that and adds it to the well, conglomeration? Well, you know, that, and, and, you know, that's a lot of the focus of antitrust in the States. Mm. Like that's what happened with um, Instagram. It's what happened. It's it's what happened with WhatsApp. When a good network builds, these guys acquire them. Um, one other point I'd make is I think it's it's interesting. Google in search you know, there were credible alternatives for search. They wouldn't have been as good, but you could have used Bing or DuckDuckGo. Yep. I still, I kind of have this thing now where it's a bit like with day-to-day search, I'll go to DuckDuckGo because I know my data's not being collected. It's only if I really need to find something, I go to Google. So, you know, you mm. can't only give your data up when you really need to. Yeah. But Facebook, there isn't an alternative for a lot of people because it's the human network rather than the service that you're going there for. Yeah. Um, there's really interesting discussions going on in the States around the idea of public um, digital infrastructure, um, and I think we need to be part of that discussion. I think one of the things over there is they they struggle to c- comprehend what could be the solution, like networks of not-for-profits or co-ops, because they don't have a history of public broadcasting, whereas mm. we in Australia have a public broadcaster with a really active network of users and a really strong brand. Unfortunately, at the moment, they've outsourced all their community operations to Facebook because it's cheaper and legally safer. Yeah. Um, but I think there is a world in which we spend a bit of time reimagining what a public network could look like and make a call on whether that's a long-term 
future for the ABC? Because at the moment, for all of its fantastic digital product, it's still a broadcaster and we're living in a network world, not a broadcast world. Mm. So... I think there's interesting ideas to embrace. I think one of the upsides of this whole episode is I think it's allowed mainstream Australians to recognise their reliance on these platforms and maybe caught pause a little bit to to contemplate. By this point, there's a good chance that you've heard me suggest the new show Unfucking the Republic. If not, I'll catch you up. I suggest you check out the new show Unfucking the Republic. It's produced by friends of mine, and they are quickly putting together a catalog of episodes that are knocking one topic out of the park after the other, all while making it look easy, even though each episode is deeply researched and painstakingly scripted. In fact, here, I've put together a trailer that I think gives you a real sense of the depth and nuance you can expect. F*** Milton Friedman. 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 Most recently, they applied their intellectual chops to tackling the war on drugs and mass incarceration, but honestly, it went in a slightly different direction. To my surprise, the host just kept saying that, well, if people weren't breaking the law, then they wouldn't be going to prison, and repeated over and over that Nancy was right, Nancy was right. And look, I admit, I didn't expect those arguments from Unfucking the Republic, and they're definitely off-brand for us as well, but... I don't want that to turn you off to the show entirely. They've got a lot of great episodes. And reading between the lines a little bit, I gather that the host of the show came of age in the 80s, and a lot of strange things can happen in those formative years. I mean, Nancy Reagan was a powerful, elegant woman at the time, and the way he spoke about her on the show got, frankly, uncomfortable. There's just no telling what effects a Just Say No poster may have had when hung on the bedroom wall of a teenage boy. So to hear a Gen Xer struggle publicly with his psychosexual hangups or any of their other genuinely wonderful episodes, check out Unfucking the Republic wherever you get your podcast by searching for UNFTR or by clicking through on the link in our show notes. Okay, obviously I'm just busting balls here, but how great would it be if that episode really existed? I would listen to that. I want to read another paragraph from this report. Um, you write, imagine a world where the unemployment rate for people of color is zero. The unhoused rate for people of color is zero. A world in which 100% of people of color have quality health care, a livable wage, quality education. We at Liberation in a Generation, you write, believe that this is possible if we strive to create a liberation economy where all people of color have their basic needs met, are safe and secure, are valued and fully belong, including people of color who are immigrants, formerly incarcerated, LGBTQ, and have a disability. You, you finally write, in order to get to this liberation economy, we must dismantle the oppression economy that monopoly power has colluded with the government to maintain. And this, this gets us into really talking about the topic in this report, which is anti-monopoly activism. Start with a little bit of a primer of, of what we're facing. I mentioned a couple of stats up top in the intro, um, uh, helping uh, put a sort of a recent and um, updated uh, lens 
on uh, the the how good it is to be a monopolist these days, right? By contrast to everybody else who who's living living through um, this pandemic and not experiencing billions and trillions of dollars of, of wealth increases. Start with a little bit of a primer of of um, what we're facing: um, the rise of unchecked capitalism and, and monopoly power, such that we're essentially living in a, a new gilded era, as the report argues. Yeah, and. Just, I mean, you, you have to, to fully understand the power of monopoly. You have to understand it through the lens of people of color who have to deal with it. So, you know, in Iowa, uh, and, you know, there's folks with um, People's Action that are organizing people um, in rural communities uh, around the, the, the threat of monopoly. But if you look at in Iowa, a corporation like Tyson Foods has managers who are sitting around on that floor, and this was documented in in, um, the media, making bets about what worker was going to get sick and die from COVID. Like the the, the inhumanity of that, I think is, is just appalling, but it just shows the dehumanization that monopolies have have created for workers, for consumers, for small businesses and everybody that's impacted. And the reason why is because at the core, monopoly power is about exactly that, power. Who has it and what they do with it. And what we have when you have monopolies, it's not just about the size of the firm. Like there's a lot of focus on the size of the firm. But what it's really about is does that firm have a disproportionate amount of power and what are they doing with that power? And what monopolies today are doing, Amazon, um, uh, Moderna, Pfizer, um, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, um, Facebook, Google, they're taking the, the power that they have around consumer prices, around workplace conditions, around wages, around the impact that they have in community and the influence that they have on government. And they're using that power to profit off of blatant systemic racism that is falling down upon black and brown workers. And that is for us the real fight that we feel when you look at monopolies and that the current system in which we use to try to govern monopoly power is totally inadequate in dealing with the kind of impact that that the monopolies have on Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and Asian American um, people in this country. Now, folks who are listening probably all assume that they know what a monopoly is, but I'm going to I'm going to sort of poke a hole in that and say you may think you know what a monopoly is, but Jeremy's got a slightly broader and I think more um, updated definition that, that's used in this report. How do you define a monopoly for purposes of, of what you guys are doing in this in this work? Um, and, and why do you propose a somewhat broader definition? Yeah, so you're right. The, the current kind of antitrust definition of a monopoly really focuses on the impact that monopoly power or corporate power has on consumers and particularly on consumer prices. So will you pay more for a product because of the monopoly power that a company has? And as I mentioned, I we believe that that's totally inadequate to really understand the full breadth of what a monopoly is. Um, monopolies have, yes, they have incredible control over consumer markets and prices. And we see that in healthcare. 
you know, so the price of insulin is much higher because of the monopoly power that a company that that pharmaceutical companies hold. But monopolies also have power over worker wages, the working conditions in which workers show up to work and have to live through. Uh, They have incredible power over small businesses all across the country. We see small businesses being crowded out by monopoly power. They have the political power to almost dictate to local communities how much they're willing to pay in taxes, which means the crowding out of essential services that are provided to communities. And what we observe in the in the um, report is that too often that the, the impact of that monopoly power falls squarely on the shoulders of people of color, whether they're workers of color, consumers of color, whether they're small business owners of color, or whether they're just people of color living in communities that are looking to their local government to really help them navigate uh, life in the economy. And I want to quote you because you offer, I think, a really, really smart um, definition here in the report. You say, we define monopoly as a corporate entity, a single corporation or a group of corporations whose sheer size and anti-competitive behavior grant it disproportionate economic power and governing influence. And, and as you've been describing, you say this negatively affects the well-being of workers, consumers, markets, local communities, democratic governance, and the planet. That's a, that's a somewhat broader definition than maybe the, the sort of technical antitrust definition of of monopoly, but for all the reasons you, you're starting to get into, you you really you argue in this report that it's it's necessary that we think a little more broadly and a little more functionally about um, who, who's operating like a monopoly and therefore where where we need to be thinking about challenging. What would that mean in practice to the 2.7 billion people who use either Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp? Interoperability gives you a lower barrier to entry by allowing you to use the parts of the existing service that make sense for you without having to uh, submit to the whole service. So imagine an interoperable Facebook service that let you leave Facebook, but continue to talk to your Facebook friends. And that was what Facebook did for MySpace. Facebook allowed you to um, uh, give a bot that it had designed so that your MySpace friends could continue to talk to you on Facebook. So you didn't have to decide, did you want Facebook's superior interface? And and Facebook, you may not remember this, but Facebook for its first 10 years also advertised its superior privacy policies. They mm-hmm. said, we're a walled garden. We don't let Google crawl all of your private updates. This is the place to go if you want private social media. Uh, so, you know, if you wanted the enhanced privacy of Facebook, but you but you also wanted to talk to your friends on MySpace, you didn't have to choose between privacy and MySpace. And there are so many opportunities for siphoning off the most valuable users Facebook has Mm -hmm. who are um, engaged in a kind of mutual hostage-taking where the fact that I continue to use Facebook is why you're using Facebook, and the fact that you're using Facebook is why I'm using Facebook, mm. and and we really are just stuck like a like a Chinese finger puzzle. <laughs> There's no way for us to get out, and this is a way to cut through that yeah. that uh, impossible puzzle. I think it's important to remind people that 
you know, for its first few years of its life. So the point at which it had less than a couple of hundred million users and um, 95% of its users have arrived since then, you know, Facebook and these other social networks were rather more interoperable. They were crawlable. They did have what was known as an, an API, an application programming interface where you could access the newsfeed in all of its glory. And so you could access you know, Facebook's newsfeed and, and, and post messages and read them through a product called FriendFeed, which could also access your Twitter and it could access the other social networks you're on. These types of aggregators. And from the early part of the 2010s, the networks made it harder and harder to access their, their information, your own information through third party products. And the argument they always gave was, we want to give you a consistent user experience when the real, real argument was, we want to control our ad inventory and we want to keep you in our walled garden where we have much control, mm-hmm. much more control over what you can and can't do. So that is 100% true. But the other thing that was different back then was that interoperating without permission was largely lawful. Mm-hmm. Software patents were effectively unheard of. Software copyrights did not uh, extend to anti-circumvention for most of these services. Uh, we didn't have Oracle's bonkers theory that APIs are copyrightable. Um, uh, terms of service were not viewed as enforceable by public courts. Uh, we had so many, um, you know, flexibilities in our law that allowed new market entrants to do things that displeased the shareholders of the dominant firms. And what these dominant firms have done is they've mobilized their monopoly rents and their ability to form a consensus to turn these doctrines into uh, a kind of new doctrine that you could call felony contempt of business model where failing to arrange your affairs to benefit shareholders becomes a literal crime, you know, as it is with, say, um, buying your apps from someone other than Apple. Can you just clarify what actually happened? I mean, what was that something that happened in the 2010s that changed the dynamic? Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's been a long project, right? But the expansion of software patents, for example, which was a very hard-fought uh, uh, activity on both sides of the Atlantic, um, you know, was, was taken, uh, was taken through a combination of legislation and litigation and practice where you had, um, a really aggressive patent filings that, that effectively asserted the patentability of things that really shouldn't have been patentable. And then periodically you would have a patent examiner who would fail to, to catch the fact that they've been asked to sign off on an unpatentable invention. And then the fact that there was that unpatentable invention would become become a kind of social, if not legal, precedent and normalize the idea that you know one click soft one click you know e commerce or whatever should be uh, a patentable invention. Um, and then you had lots of money pour into it. You know, uh, filing a software patent became de rigueur for startups because it became an asset that uh, venture capitalists could uh, liquidate. On the event that you uh, failed, which is what most most startups do, mm-hmm. um, and and then it could end up in the hands of a well capitalized patent troll who could then take it out and weaponize it. So you have all of that, but you also have uh, new interpretations of existing laws. So uh, you you mentioned FriendFeed. Um, you know, there's a law called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act on the books in the U.S. It's a an ancient computer law. It dates back to 1986. And literally, its origin story is that Ronald Reagan saw the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick and panicked that America didn't have strict enough um, uh, uh, cybercrime law. And he passed this extremely broad cybercrime law called the CFA, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Facebook argued successfully in court that under CFAA, 
it was illegal to violate its terms of service, that violating its terms of service was the same as hacking. And they shut down a company called Power Ventures that was just making a shared dashboard so that you could read Facebook combined with your LinkedIn inbox and your inboxes from other services all in one place. And, and you know, now they're doing that again with a new browser called Friendly Browser. They uh, used it against um, a group of NYU researchers who have a, a nonprofit academic project called um, uh, Ad Observer, mm-hmm. where uh, Facebook users voluntarily submit the ads that they see on Facebook. And these go into a repository called the Ad Observatory that accountability journalists, scholars, and researchers use to detail whether or not Facebook is living up to its uh, own policies on the promulgation of paid disinformation. And they've said that, well, you violate our terms of service, so it's hacking, so it's a felony, so you've got to stop. Uh, And this is only to protect our users' privacy. It has nothing to do with the fact that you're embarrassing us and showing that we're not living up to our promises. That's only incidental. (laughs) And so, you know, you have the that this these extraordinarily expensive forms of legal entrepreneurship that are combined in ways that um, uh, change the both the letter and the practice of the law and policy, so that doing unto Facebook what Facebook did unto MySpace is mm-hmm. a felony. You have a very powerful um, way that you phrase this in in this in this report. You say racial wealth inequality, um, and you specifically are talking there about racial wealth inequality, is the consequential disease caused by the oppression economy. I can't remember reading another publication about monopolistic behavior and and the need for an antitrust movement that that draws such a direct causal link between uh, monopolies and the ways that they operate and racial wealth inequality and, and, and structural racism. Talk a little bit about um, the how monopolies are contributing to the immense and historic levels of racial wealth inequality that, that folks are maybe more, fami- more familiar with, but, but not aware of, of, of that link. Yeah, no, thanks for that question. And what um, I think a, an important distinction around the framing there is that, yes, it, it is drive Monopolies are driving uh, racial wealth inequality. And yes, monopolies are a product of an oppression economy that is, um, you know, that where where racism is baked into the design of the economy. But they are also a profit tier that they are gaining profit from the existence of that oppression economy. So it is in their interest to sustain it and maintain it and to keep it going. And an example of that we draw out in the in the uh, paper that I think is so important and I think really uh, illustrates this is, you know, as we mentioned, one of the pillars that holds up the oppression economy is the criminalization of people of color, that people of color as criminals or, or, or d- defined as criminals and mass incarceration, the over-policing of black and brown communities is something that upholds this oppression economy. And then when you have a company like Amazon who purchases the Ring Corporation. And for those that, that may not be familiar, um, Ring is a is a product that's provided by Amazon in which they provide surveillance um, and, and home security to everyone. 
you can get a little ring doorbell where someone rings the door, you can be at work, you can open it. It's like, oh, cool, leave my package there. That's how they market it. But what that does is that that, that ring device pulls in a lot of data. And what we have is cameras in homes all across the country that can be used to surveil people. And what we know is one of the things that police do is they over-surveil black and brown communities, which leads to the type of mass incarceration that we've seen in this country. Well, Amazon has contracts, and in fact, 770 contracts with police departments so that they can get the data from those ring devices. So I think that really illustrates that not only is our, our uh, monopolies driving racial inequality through the low wages that they pay workers, through the way that they crowd out black businesses, from the way that they treat um, immigrants at the, at the workplace, but they're also actively doing things to prop up and uphold this oppression economy because they are profiting from it. That's another um, really, I think, significantly unique aspect about what you guys have done here. This isn't the kind of think tank report that um, it, you traditionally read, right? Uh, in a lot of ways, you actually really wrote this for and and almost to grassroots leaders of color as, as sort of a primer on anti-monopoly activism, but but also as as something of the beginning of a toolkit um, that that really could help people start to to take this on as part and parcel of their work. Um, I'd love to get a little bit into kind of why you structured the report this way, why you you took this somewhat different approach in writing, not just for the media and for policymakers and for the, the Washington elites, but, but actually for grassroots leaders of color on the ground. I'm going to quote you again. You write, this paper aims to contribute a major step in the long journey of bridging the divide between anti-monopoly researchers and policy advocates and grassroots leaders of color, and you write, the first step on that journey is knowledge. What does the current anti-monopoly uh, uh, fight look like? And, and and why do you believe, and Solana as well, why, why did you guys prioritize bridging this divide? Yeah, so as I mentioned in, in my opening about liberation generation, we believe that the 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 leaders that are going to lead us into having a liberation economy and dismantling this oppression economy that we've been talking about are grassroots leaders of color who are building power in communities. And the reason why we believe that is, one, they are closest to the people who are experiencing the pain and harm of systemic racism. Um, they are in there with them. They understand, they hear their stories, and they're organizing them for change. The other thing that we believe is so important is that they are in the business of building the power, the political power of those people. They're not there to serve them, which there's people that do that. And there's a there's a reason for that. And it's important. But they see their role in helping those people build power so that they can have the agency, the force, their government, whether it's a local, state or federal, to act on their behalf. And we believe that if the one of the government's roles is to curb corporate monopoly power, they should be the ones driving that change because they will become with the experiences, which we try to reflect in the report of how monopoly power is impacting 
communities. You know, how how an Amazon distribution center in the Inland Empire in California is impacting the not just the, the economic life, but the quality of life of people in those communities. They could speak to that in real terms. And that not only does the advocacy need to be informed by that, but also the policymaking needs to be informed by that. So what we did was, you know, with that kind of um, assumption, we went to groups like the Athena Coalition, who is organizing people against Amazon across the country. We went to Color of Change, who's an organization that is focusing on um, curbing the power of big tech, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Google, Apple. We went to um, Acre, Action Center for Research in the Economy, and they're doing a lot of work focusing on big banks and the corporate and monopoly power of big banks. And we said, you know, what is holding the kind of grassroots movement back from really diving in and, and, and into this um, anti-monopoly issue. And, you know, they, they came up with, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of barriers that identified and some of them that we're, we're working with them to solve. But one of them was, you know, we don't have kind of a global understanding of, of how monopoly power impacts people of color in particular. We understand it through the lens of a particular firm, Amazon, Bank of America, like that. But we don't really have a good grounding in how it happens globally. Therefore, our policymaking doesn't have kind of an eye towards how could we globally and kind of more broadly address this problem. We've just heard clips today starting with Exponential View explaining the history of how we changed our anti-monopoly regulation to the Bork paradigm. Follow the Money described the inherent market dominance of Google. Exponential View also explained that Google has only ever made one and a half decent products. Think about that. Follow the Money laid out all the details of Australia's battle with Google and Facebook over bargaining with media outlets. Exponential View explained the benefits of interoperability and the legal war waged by Facebook to prevent it. And Off Kilter in two clips looked into anti-monopoly activism through a racial justice lens. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Follow the Money, who looked into some of the absolutely ridiculous arguments Google was making to defend their position against Australian regulation. The Economic Security Project looked into other monopolies like agriculture and pointed out the connections between the dominance of big ag and other far-right policies of the politicians that they own. And off-kilter looked into the details of which government agencies are responsible for enforcing anti-monopoly laws and explained why a race-neutral approach inevitably hurts people of color. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now... We'll hear from you. The very beginning of this first message was cut off, but you may recognize Aaron from Philly. 
silly calling in. I wanted to reply to a couple of voicemails left uh, on the subject of the child tax credit a couple episodes ago. And I uh, actually want to call to disagree with both points of view from those voicemails because you know, I feel like those arguments were both sort of coming from a vacuum and you know not looking at places where you know just paying people when they have a kid is already the norm and the first example that comes to mind just because it's the non-US country I know the best is Germany when somebody has a kid you know they get a monthly child allowance from the government there and like most of western Europe Germany is not in fact experiencing a population explosion it is in fact below replacement birth rate as they call it where there are fewer kids being born every year than there are people dying every year so uh, despite the fact that parents get money for kids it just doesn't cause any sort of population explosion and i fear that that argument sounds a bit like the kind of welfare queen argument that you know was trotted out by reagan back in the 70s and 80s that oh well if we just pay people money to take care of their kids they're just going to keep having kids and get free government money and that that's just the discredited theory at this point it doesn't work that way from you know the evidence that we've seen and from the evidence of other countries and as far as the idea of you know that we shouldn't be giving people money because it just feeds into the privatized neoliberal system rather than just getting people things like education and you know healthcare at no extra cost those things are good too but i see that as a both and situation again going back to germany you know they have not exactly like canadian or british style medicare for all but they do have government mandated health coverage that everybody gets and you can go to university for free as far as i know even for graduate degrees there that's all well and good but you still got to buy food for your kids and you know maybe when you have a kid you realize oh you know what maybe i need to get a slightly bigger place to live and having that child stipend you know is the difference between you having to stay in your current apartment and go somewhere move somewhere a little bit bigger so you have a little bit more room for your kid to um grow up not living directly on top of you. Uh, yeah, there's just, there's always going to be things that parents have to buy for their kids that uh cost money even if it's not education and healthcare. And so again, it's just I think it just symbolizes the idea that it's the responsibility of the whole community to take care of the next generation and one way of doing that is to make sure that every kid is getting the amount of money that they need to have the necessities of life covered. I suppose you could just start sending food to every family instead of uh giving them cash or you know send them clothes and food and everything else. That would certainly be a way to do it, but I just think handing parents money for buying stuff for their kids is probably the more efficient way to handle that. But I'm open to disagreement. So that's all I had to say on that. Thanks as always for doing the show and stay awesome. Hi Jay. This is Jonathan from New York. I finally got around to listening to the Biden comments you analyzed at the end of the foreign policy episode after he had a conversation with Chinese leadership at the same time. I agreed with your interpretation and disagreed with your reaction to it. 
You interpreted Biden as saying that he had brought up the oppression of the Uyghurs to Chinese President Xi but that he acknowledged he was just going through a dance with him, and that he knew she would ignore him, and she knew he knew that. You also had some extremely well-deserved criticism of how poorly he explained himself which is pretty remarkable for someone who has made a career of public speaking, and depressing as he is the leading representative of our country, but on substance. You found this frustrating because you thought he should be doing something more effective and shouldn't have admitted he was just going through the motions. I found it comforting that he was realistic about our powerlessness and wasn't trying to do more than we are able to do. I get more worried when our president claims he will fix something that he can't. Biden correctly noted that the only way to influence China is a collective effort of nations they need to deal with. As he said, China needs good relations with other countries and their oppression of the Uyghurs harms that and, hopefully, an international consensus will pressure them to stop. I think that's a realistic assessment even if not very optimistic. The US can't do much alone. We should speak out. As he has. As you noted, he should learn to be much clearer and I'd note the State Department was much clearer and direct recently. But trying to do more would be useless or counterproductive. So I think it is actually good he acknowledges our lack of influence. Though again, he could say it much better. The US should recognize that, bad as the Uyghur situation is. We have very limited influence. So we should focus our efforts on stopping humanitarian crises where we do have influence. Or even culpability, such as Yemen. So I credit Biden with doing something on Yemen but criticize him for not taking much more forceful steps because we do have the power to change things. But on China I think he is doing about as much as we reasonably can. The two are connected because only if we stop doing terrible things ourselves in places like Yemen, will we have some moral standing to call out others and perhaps be able to organize an international effort to help the Uyghurs. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or who wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. First, in response to Aaron from Philly, this is such a great example of what I sometimes refer to only in my own head as strategic silence. We heard a couple of voicemails from people talking about child tax credit and giving money to parents of children and all of that. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to touch that one for, you know, an episode or two. Let's see if someone wants to put in the mental energy to addressing that. And lo and behold, Aaron from Philly comes in from the wings. So I'll start by adding just a slightly nuanced point on the idea of giving money to people, further entrenching neoliberalism. I just want to point out that there is a sort of parallel that, that was already touched on a little bit between the arguments between universal basic income and a universal job guarantee program. And echo of that same argument comes through in that debate, and the argument goes that a universal basic income will, just as the caller suggested relating to parents and kids, would further entrench the neoliberal capitalistic mindset, and a jobs guarantee does that to a far, far less degree. So beyond well, Germany does it, and it seems to be okay. All the countries are functioning in this same model to two different degrees. Europe and particularly Scandinavia are much farther along in their 
social democracy welfare state system than we are, but they're still living in the same neoliberal capitalistic world that we are, just in a slightly different place on the spectrum. So if we're talking about fundamentally changing things, warnings about what actions we could take now that is further entrenching the status quo rather than moving us to a new place that is fundamentally different than the status quo, I think those sorts of conversations are good and interesting to have and, and should continue. Now, the less nuanced point, I just want to call out the caller, Rich, who was most forcefully speaking out against the child tax credit for this particular turn of phrase he used, because for me, this is where he went off the rails. For these parents, knowing the government will give them a substantial cash payment every month will enable more of them to afford to have a child. I don't need a study to know that this will increase population. As a general rule, I would warn people against ever uttering a sentence that begins with the phrase, I don't need a study to know. It's not a good look, and it is going to lead you into bad ways of thinking. At the very least, it implies that you have not read a study on the topic, and yet you have a very strong belief about it anyway. And at worst, it vaguely implies that you don't really intend to change your mind should new information come about. And I don't know exactly where on that spectrum Rich is. However, I will say that Rich made that comment in response to me already making the same point that Aaron made about existing social welfare programs that specifically target parents and children, and how they do not, in their current incarnation, not just in America, but elsewhere, encourage runaway population growth to any degree. So I already made that point, and Rich sort of doubled down by insisting that he doesn't need a study to know that what he believes to be true is definitely true. And, uh, and, and I would say there are a handful of things that you can know without a study. I generally think that I don't need a study to know that if it rains that the ground will be wet, but that's pretty baseline. Once you get into the realm of talking about behavioral economics, yeah, I am going to need to see a study to understand the incredibly detailed and nuanced and very often irrational actions of groups of human beings. Yeah, I'm going to need to see that study. In the real-world examples that we have, it doesn't seem that social welfare programs that target parents and children increases birth rates. Now, the point I made is that there is a tipping point. There must be, because to take it to an absurd example, if you give everyone a million dollars for every kid they have, then I would agree that that is very likely to increase birth rates. But given the examples of welfare programs that we currently have to look at, that isn't the case. So apparently they are not hitting that tipping point yet. Now, secondly, just a quick response to Jonathan about Biden Speaking about China, I actually agree with Jonathan's analysis. I guess my thoughts initially were that it's just gross to say it all out loud instead of just doing it. Like, yeah, if you're going to play patty cakes for now, but you're going to try to build a coalition later, just do that. Saying it feels gross. 
However, on the other hand, maybe I just think it feels gross because honesty isn't something we're used to from politicians. So it feels simultaneously refreshing and utterly uncomfortable. I don't know, listening to Joe Biden's like taking a communal shower. So with that image now in your mind, uh, keep the comments coming in as always by dialing 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work on the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, Activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, occasional bonus show co-host, as you uh, hopefully heard a little sample of this week. And thanks to those who support the show, who also get to listen to all of that bonus content by becoming members or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support because that is absolutely how the program survives. And everyone can earn rewards and support the show just by telling everyone you know about it using our Referomatic program at bestoftheleft.com slash refer. So definitely check that out. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.